0: Welcome to the Feeling Bookish Podcast, Audio Essay Edition. I'm Robert Fay, and this is our ongoing series of audio essays, readings, and sound experiments. Today, I'm thinking about what I call the everything novel, or what some have turned the total novel. In a 2008 review of Roberto Bolaño's novel, 2666, the critic Stephen Moore provided one of the best definitions I've seen of the everything novel. He wrote, quote, with 2666, Bolaño joins the ambitious overachievers of the 20th century novel, those like Proust, Musil, Joyce, Gaddis, Pynchon, Fuentes, and Volman, who push the novel far past its conventional size and scope to encompass an entire era, deploying encyclopedic knowledge and stylistic verve to offer a grand, if sometimes idiosyncratic, summation of their culture and the novelist's place in it. And despite the barriers today to frustrate the emergence of such singular works, like a risk-averse publishing culture dominated by literary agents, the dogmatic influence of program fiction, and a culture fascinated with self and personal identity, as well as one of the most timeless barriers, literary geniuses don't come around very often in this era or any other. But books like Duck's Newburyport by Lucy Ellman prove that writers still burn with ambition to create the Everything Novel, and good readers still hunger for challenging works. Today's audio essay is based on a piece I published in Three Corks Daily in 2019 called Finnegan's Wake and Dreaming of the Everything Novel. Hope you enjoy, and I appreciate you listening. In the winter of 1927, James Joyce was in desperate need of a kind word. It didn't seem to matter that he was a genius, the man who'd published Ulysses five years earlier, an artist of such magnitude that another Irish genius, a young Samuel Beckett, was devoted to him and acted as his personal secretary. Joyce was completing a new novel under the working name Work in Progress, now known as Finnegan's Wake, and nearly everyone who had read drafts hated it. His wife, Nora Jones, badgered him, quote, why don't you write sensible books that people can understand? While his longtime patron, the sophisticated Harriet Shaw Weaver, wrote him scathing letters, she found the work nearly indecipherable. She wrote, I am made in such a way that I do not care much for the output from your wholesale safety pun factory, all in caps, nor for the darkness and unintelligibilities of your deliberately entangled language system, end quote. Joyce biographer Richard Ellman, in his definitive chronicle, James Joyce, published in 1859, tells us that Joyce was so upset by this letter, he took to bed. In Joyce's three previous books, he had explored and mastered the limits of the short story and the autobiographical novel, and then proceeded to write a maximalist, quote, avant-garde novel, Ulysses, that was arguably three to four decades ahead of its time. In baseball terms, Ulysses remains the equivalent of Joe DiMaggio's 56-game hitting streak in 1941. A record of human achievement that is unassailable, and will forever remain a sacred Mount Sinai for writers across the globe. Yet this great book burdened Joyce as well. Like Dimaggio, he had to know his achievement was not repeatable. Elman wrote in Dubliners, Joyce had explored the waking consciousness from outside, and in A Portrait and Ulysses from the inside. He had. Begun to impinge but gingerly upon the mind of sleep. That the great psychological discovery of the century was the night world, something he was very aware of. Elman, we can't forget, is referring to the writings and work of Sigmund Freud in his psychoanalytic theory, which was an intellectual bombshell in the early 20th century, rivaled only by Einstein's theory of general relativity. In Finnegan's Wake, Joyce was looking to create an entirely new language for the new territory of the unconscious, of sleep, of the dream world, a novel that was to be as total and complete as life itself. I must confess I've not read any portion of Finnegan's Wake, and as a sometimes book reviewer, essay, and podcaster, I loathe to omit gaps in my reading, but with Finnegan's Wake the feeling is different, in a way. I almost take pride in my non reading, in the way some people boast of successfully dodging jury duty their whole life. Now, to avoid a difficult book simply because it's difficult is certainly inexcusable. But to pass on Joyce's late life pun factory could be, considering one's job, station life, or childcare responsibilities, a prudent marriage or sanity saving choice. There is much to be said for a night or several on the couch watching the crown and eating Ben and Jerry's with your favorite companion. One can even imagine good old Joyce himself right alongside, having a Jameson, squinting at the screen and making biting, off-color jokes about the Queen of England having sexual intercourse with people other than her husband. When a new English translation appeared in 2018 of German novelist Uwe Johnson's Anniversaries, I hoped it would live up to the Everything Novel novel monochore as Stephen Moore defined it. But I found the organizing structure of the book, the protagonist absorbing the contents of the New York Times each day, and then the author intermingling these topical events with her life and Germany's troubled past, interesting for a time, but predictable and tiresome, quite frankly, when projected over the span of 1,700 pages in two volumes. I have no trouble admitting I stopped. And after 40, one must abandon unsatisfying books without pity or regret. One must be cold-hearted and ration one's time for the immortals, for the precious ones. In an interview on the Untranslated blog, a former guest of this podcast, Arabic and Hebrew translator Josh Calvo, a wonderful friend of ours, spoke about the Israeli writer S. Yazar's Days of Ziklag, published in 1958 a giant of a book that was written in Hebrew and is yet to be translated into English. It chronicles the actions and experiences of Jewish soldiers during the 1948 Israeli War of Independence. And Calvo describes the effect of the novel in this way. Quote, "...the result has been described as something like attacking the impossible task of capturing the real from all sides, from every grammatical tense, from the tenseless nature surrounding the soldiers." Yitzar exploits every available linguistic, thematic, and literary force possible to capture the infinite richness of a single moment of human experience, end quote. Love that passage by Calvo. One could easily say something similar about Ulysses, which tries to capture the, quote, total real of Dublin in 1904, or even about Don DeLillo's underworld, though I'm not comparing the works. An ambitious book in its own way, though he takes a more, macro approach to time and in investigating 40 years of 20th century America in his tale of baseball, Cold War politics, and popular culture. Carl Ove Nosgaard, <clears throat> in his six autobiographical novels that encompass my struggle, documents the stream of life by focusing on the accumulation of the personal, familial, and domestic minutiae of a stay-at-home dad-slash-writer. Nosgaard focuses a magnifier on those mundane moments novelists have always assumed they had to dramatize or ignore. His books are like a warm blanket draped across your lap as you relax before a wood stove. A friend is there with you, talking, a pleasant person, a person that leaves nothing out. It's like this, quote, We went to Ikea and bought a baby changing table, which we loaded with piles of clothes and towels. And on the wall above, I stuck a sequence of postcards of seals, whales, fish, turtles, lions, monkeys, and the beetles during the psychedelic period, so that the baby could see what a wonderful world it had been born into, end quote. There are thousands of pages like this, and it can be quite good. But after a few volumes or so, one gets the idea of what's happening. His project illustrates the truism that the everything novel is not achieved, through length alone. Readers can likely point to their own example of the Everything novel, whether it's Lucy Ellman's Duck's Newburyport, Tolstoy's top-to-bottom portrayal of Napoleonic Russia in War and Peace, or the elegant depictions of the aristocratic milieu in Paris during the Belle Epoque in Paris, Marcel Proust's In Search of Lost Time, which weighs in at a none-too-modest seven volumes in comparison to Nosgard's six. But great literature is not sociology, history, or anthropology by other means. As Calvo notes, it is an attempt to capture singular moments of being alive, and a great novel has the ability to jolt our nervous system, not because it faithfully depicts the lives of Italian Americans in the Bronx in 1953, but because the crack and sizzle of life, something of its singular magic, has been successfully transmitted. In Zen Buddhism, the process of passing on the teachings and wisdom of Buddhism to an acolyte is known as Dharma transmission. I don't believe wisdom is transmitted via novels, but certainly the sense of being alive is present in the great works. If life has taught me anything, it's that something acquired, something achieved, usually proves inferior to the process of gaining, trying, wanting. The yearning within one's imagination is always more delectable, more perfect than anything held close and finally owned. The everything novel I want to read is in my mind, of course, the perfect everything novel. Not in any of the world's great libraries, but that doesn't mean I will stop looking for it. The novel I want to read might possess the brevity of a Lydia Davis story or perhaps be longer than Balzac's The Human Comedy. The everything novel I want to read is likely the novel I need to write, which is to say I must spoil its perfection in my mind and flush it out into the open, where it will prove mortal and complete and a true child among the masters. The everything novel is as rare as a human life truly lived, and it possesses that imperceptible, mysterious link between life and literature that many sense, but few can articulate with any precision. James Joyce had to reject the dogmas of the Catholic Church to be the man he needed to be. But he remained fascinated with the Mass his whole life, and in particular its sacramental mysteries, including the transubstantiation, which is the Catholic belief that the communion bread and wine become the body and blood of Jesus Christ during the consecration at Mass. The Catechism of the Catholic Church states that during the consecration, quote, there occurs the change of the entire substance of the bread, into the entire substance of the body of Christ, even though the appearance of bread remain. An important point. Catholics do not believe it is a symbol of Jesus. It's the real deal. In other words, normal human senses perceive ordinary bread, but this is an incomplete perception. For the Savior of the world has now appeared in the Church and freely gives himself to you, the believer. The connection between life and literature is somehow like this. For its mystery is hidden beneath simple materials, ink and paper, yet entirely unconstrained by these finite mortal things. And we know this because, every so often, as we're stumbling around, more like fidgeters than readers, it happens. We find a book and life has been renewed we have encountered just for a few short hours, the promise of everlasting life. Thank you for listening, and please let us know what you think about the Feeling Bookish podcast on Apple Podcasts, or follow us on Twitter or Instagram. Thanks again.